This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. External eye disorders are commonly seen in the primary care provider's office, yet very few of us have ever had any formal training in ophthalmology. Fortunately, most of the external eye problems are relatively benign, but not all. Can you tell the difference between a viral and bacterial conjunctivitis? How about conjunctivitis versus scleritis? External eye problems can be associated with a variety of systemic diseases, including several autoimmune conditions. So to give us a review of external eye conditions is Dr. Amir Khan, a ophthalmologist at the Mayo Clinic. Amir, thank you for joining us today. Daryl, thanks for inviting me. Well, this is kind of a neat topic, and I've heard you give this lecture before, but we're going to test you because you've always had uh, images that make it much easier to see what you're talking about. So now you're going to have to uh, describe the finding. So let's start by something that we commonly see in the urgent care setting. And as our residents come out, they always want to put the patient on some type of antibiotic eye drop or ointment. And that's conjunctivitis, you know, bacterial versus viral. Um, what does it look like? How do you tell the difference? And how do you treat it? The short answer is sometimes you don't actually know, but there's certain hallmarks that can help differentiate bacterial conjunctivitis versus viral conjunctivitis. And even I'll throw in allergic conjunctivitis into that as well. Really, the hallmark of bacterial conjunctivitis is there really is a lot of mucus, a lot of pus. It's one of those things where you wipe your eyes and within a few minutes, it's filled up with more purulent material. Whereas with viral conjunctivitis, it's probably more, the eyes are slightly red. You may wake up in the morning and they're crusted or crusted shut. And oftentimes it's associated with uh, upper respiratory infection. The hallmark of allergic conjunctivitis would probably be seasonality and itching of the eyes. I could probably count on probably still one hand, uh, the number of cases of true bacterial conjunctivitis that I've seen. So really for the most part, almost all the conjunctivitis that we do see tends to be viral. That doesn't mean that people aren't leaving without a prescription for antibiotic drops, but really for most of the time, antibiotic drops aren't indicated in the case of viral conjunctivitis. I think even some of the schools have recognized this now. There used to be rules for the schools that students couldn't return unless they were on some type of antibiotic eye drop. But I think even there's some recognition uh, that those rules don't make as much sense. For the most part, it's going to be just supportive care. Uh, one thing I think you need to emphasize with your patients is that even if we don't give you a, a prescription for an antibiotic drop, that does not mean that your condition is not contagious. So something like viral conjunctivitis can be very contagious. And the way it spreads is if you rub your eyes, touch something, or share towels with people, uh, that can cause this to spread. So really good hand hygiene is very important. Avoid rubbing your eyes. I've had patients where I diagnose with viral conjunctivitis in one eye, they then take a tissue, wipe that eye, and then promptly wipe their other eye. That's how things can get transmitted. Other than transmitting it to others or your other eye, is there anything we need to consider for treatment of a viral conjunctivitis? 
mainly supportive. So just something like artificial tears would primarily be all that you need. Okay. Sometimes a cool washcloth can help soothe the eyes a little bit, but the biggest thing is going to be time. All right. So how do you differentiate conjunctivitis from something a bit more serious, uh, scleritis? I'm just going to back up a little bit. And so in the eye, on the external part of the eye, I mean, everybody says, oh, there's the white part of the eye. But on top of the white part, which is the sclera, there's actually the conjunctiva, which is the first layer that we talked about. Below that is what we call the episclera, which is another layer. And then there's the sclera. Inflammation can occur in any of those three layers. We talked about conjunctivitis. Episcleritis will also give you a red picture in the eye. And those vessels that are inflamed sit right below the conjunctiva. And at a slit lamp, you can see the different levels there. But then, as you alluded to, scleritis, which is an inflammation of that white part, the sclera, that can be serious for the eye, and it can also be a serious sign of an underlying systemic problem. And you, and you alluded to rheumatologic or connective tissue disorders potentially could be causing that. If you didn't have an underlying diagnosis, that would be reason to send them to their internist or primary care physician to be worked up potentially for an underlying etiology. One of the ways that we can differentiate scleritis from either conjunctivitis or episcleritis is putting a drop of phenylephrine in the eye. If you put a drop of phenylephrine in the eye, it'll actually dilate the eye. So if you're going to do that, warn your patients. In both conjunctivitis and episcleritis, it'll cause those vessels to blanch. It'll vasoconstrict those vessels. So the redness will at least partially go away. In scleritis, those vessels don't vasoconstrict. So the eye would still be red. So that's one way we can tell. With the slit lamp also, you can see what's deeper and what's not. Scleritis often is painful too, which differentiates it from typically conjunctivitis. It sounds like if we're not certain that this is conjunctivitis and we're suspecting scleritis or episcleritis, they probably need to see an ophthalmologist. They do, because sometimes it, it, it's really hard to know, particularly if you don't have a slit lamp or you're not experienced using a slit lamp, what is what. The other thing that can cause red eyes could be something like iritis, which is inflammation inside the eye. And that can also be from some of those similar underlying systemic etiologies. And again, without a slit lamp, it's really hard to diagnose that. Okay. Well, one thing that we often see in elderly patients is uh, a blepharitis. This often bothers patients, a relatively benign condition. But tell us about that. Yeah. And I'd say, Daryl, just from my experience, it's not limited to elderly. It can be with anybody. And that's more of an inflammation along the eyelids. Sometimes there can also be some crusting on the eyelids. As you said, it's not serious in terms of causing much damage to the eye, but it can be very annoying and irritating with a gritty, almost foreign body sensation in the eyes. Typically we recommend just using lubricating drops, artificial teardrops. And particularly if there's crusting, uh, we recommend just soaking and massaging the eyelids with a warm washcloth. Okay. And another thing that we often see and often experience is a sty or hordeolum. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, and that's kind of on a similar continuum with blepharitis. What a sty is, is a plugging up of the meibomian glands in the eyelid. So if they get plugged, then you see that bump along the eyelid. Most styes tend to resolve on their own. To help that, we also recommend 
just a warm washcloth, maybe soaking and massaging that maybe 10, 15 minutes in the morning, in the evening to try to get that almost to open up and spontaneously drain. If they don't, and it's still bothersome, what we can do in the clinic is make an incision in that sty and drain it. We don't actually excise them, but we incise them, making an incision in them. The question may come about, well, do I need to put my patient on any type of antibiotics or anything? And there really isn't a big role for antibiotics in terms of treating a sty. There are times, though, where if it looks like there's more of a maybe a preceptal or inflammatory cellulitis associated with the sty, if the whole lid is tender, I may put those patients on an antibiotic like Augmentin. But for the most part, the mainstay treatment is warm compresses. And if it's still persistent, that can be incised and drained. Okay. Now, next two will kind of lump together, uh, even though they're kind of different. Uh, the difference between ectropion and entropion. Okay. So what we're talking about is eyelid position. And in entropion, the eyelid turns in. So I just like to think N and in. Uh, the eyelid turns in. And then in ectropion, the eyelid turns out. And it can be caused by various different things. Both of them can. It can be scarring along the lid. But a lot of it is just due to age-related changes in the uh, elasticity of the lid tissues there and some of the connections. So some of the manifestations or irritations from both of those conditions are, are different. When the eyelid turns in, one of the things that can happen is your eyelashes can then rub against your cornea, and that can cause an irritation to the eye. When your eyelid turns out, the puncta, which is one of the drains for the tears that you have, you have one in your upper eyelid and one in your lower eyelid. When your eyelid turns out in particular, that drain is no longer in position to catch the tears. So people may experience a lot of epiphora or tears running down their cheek because they're not getting caught by the puncta by the drain. The other thing is, I've seen patients with their eyelid turned out, and since it gets exposed to more of the elements, it gets red. So people may notice a very red eye. Uh, for both of those things, basically the lid can be tightened surgically to alleviate those symptoms. Well, since we're on eyelid disorders, I wasn't planning to talk about this, but it might be worth mentioning. I've had a few patients who've actually had uh, plastic surgery for, uh, I guess you can call it droopy eyelids, because it's actually was affecting their vision. Do you see that very often? I do. As I tell my patients, uh, with time, all our body tissues tend not to go up, but they tend to fall down. So droopy eyelids can be caused by a couple different things. One, there can just be extra skin, and people sometimes have a hooding or excess skin around their eyelids. And we, the fancy word for that is dermatocolasis, and that extra skin can be surgically removed. And then the other thing we actually have is ptosis or actual drooping of the eyelid. The reason that occurs is the muscle that attaches to the backbone of the eyelid, over time, that attachment gets frayed and stretched, so the lid starts to fall down. So surgically, the, the muscle can be reattached to the backbone of the eyelid and to lift the lid up. Both of those things can cause some droopiness of the eyelids. So as you said that, you know, getting the eyelids up back into position can really improve people's visual field and <laughs> let a lot more light in. Yeah. Now the next one, subconjunctival hemorrhage. I used to love when patients would come in with this because no matter how much time I was given, I only took about one minute to diagnose it. <laughs> yeah. so I always had extra time available, but 
it scares the heck out of patients when they wake up with it. And even our residents, when they would see it for the first time, were quite frightened by what they saw because it looks rather ominous, but it, it's really pretty benign. But tell us about the subconjunctival hemorrhages. Yeah, subconjunctival hemorrhage, as you said, uh, tends to be benign, but it's very striking and very dramatic. Whereas with conjunctivitis, the eye may be more diffusely red or injected or with a subconjunctival hemorrhage, there's a portion of the eye that looks almost solid brick red, and it tends to be in a sector. You may not even feel it. So sometimes pet patients who don't even know they have it until they come to work or something like that, and everyone looks at them in comments and goes, what happened? The other thing about a subconjunctival hemorrhage is it can start small, and over time, it can spread. So while you may see them in just a corner of the eyes affected, in a day or two, it could spread and, and obscure even more of the sclera or the white part of the eye. I usually take the opportunity, um, because it is a benign condition, just to find out a couple things, um, high blood pressure, just to ask them if their blood pressure is being well controlled. I ask them about any trauma to the eye, and included in that would be, have you had any recent eye surgery? And then I also ask them about if they're on any blood thinners, and when's the last time they checked the status of their blood thinners? So it's just another opportunity to check up on some other things there. But as far as actually affecting the eye, it is benign. But it's one of those things that, you know, you can definitely spot across the room. Yeah. And I usually ask the patient the same questions that you just mentioned. And I'm always amazed that many patients have none of those things. They're not right. on aspirin. They're not on anticoagulants, yet they still have this. So, you know, it, it can occur basically in almost anybody. And I don't know if anybody knows why it happens, but uh, it's, it's pretty common. Yeah, pretty common, pretty striking, but thankfully benign. Now, the next thing can be rather serious, especially when it involves this nerve distribution, and that's uh, herpes zoster or shingles. That we definitely need to send to an ophthalmologist. What do you do with those patients? This is actually another one of those across-the-room diagnoses, too. When someone comes in with uh, shingles or herpes zoster ophthalmicus, which is basically shingles in the V1 distribution of the fifth cranial nerve there. And what you may see is just all these lesions and scarring. And because it's related to the distribution of the nerve, it really obeys the midline. So it'll just split the top part of the face and the nose, and it'll all be localized to one side. The important thing to do, particularly in a primary care setting, is to start the patient on oral antivirals. A lot of times the question comes up, well, they've had this for a few days, so I need to start it. We recommend that you start everybody on oral antivirals. Really, the morbidity of taking an oral antiviral is minimal. And depending which ones you want, the cost can be relatively low as well. The problem with zoster is that eventually the rash part goes away, but what can persist is inflammation. Really, you can take almost any level of the eye and add the word itis to it, and it can be affected by zoster. So what we really like to do is after you've seen the patient initially and put them on an oral antiviral, send them to an eye care provider to at the very least get a baseline exam to see if there's any involvement at the time. And then from an ophthalmology point of view, we would follow up with them with probably within a few weeks just to make sure there aren't any persistent sequelae from their initial infection. 
Now, I don't see much uh, zoster involving the eye, but uh, we do see a fair amount involving the thorax and other parts of the body. And occasionally, especially when the rash is rather severe, we get a post-herpetic neuralgia, which can be absolutely miserable for patients for months, sometimes indefinitely. Do you see that in the eye too? Can this be a cause of persistent eye pain? Yeah, and it, it can be, and maybe not so much even pain in the eye, but pain around the eye too in that distribution. And I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't use this as a plug for getting uh, Shingrix, yep. which is really important to help prevent zoster, not just in the V1 distribution, but anywhere. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Uh, the Shingrix is uh, much more efficacious than the older uh, zoster vaccine, the Zostavac. So uh, even if they've had the Zostavax and even if patients have had shingles, it uh, still is worth their time to have the shingles vaccine. And the other thing that's important is get it before patients get on Medicare. <laughs> Medicare does not cover it. And it's not, a, it's not a cheap vaccine. It can be over $300. So uh, most insurance companies will cover it, but not Medicare. That's right. your consumer tip for the day. <laughs> exactly. Well, I can speak from experience. I had, I had one done when I was uh, here and uh, it was covered. And the second one, I had to pay like $170 for it. So last condition is something we see, uh, and that's a corneal abrasion, usually from a contact lens, but maybe not. So what, what do you do for those patients? Yeah, corneal abrasion can be from a lot of different things. It can be from, you know, getting poked by your child in the eye to hiking outside and a tree branch hits you to sometimes with a contact lens. The key for corneal abrasion is to prevent it from getting infected because what a corneal abrasion is, it's the surface layer, the epithelium of the cornea is scraped off for some reason. Eventually that will grow back, but you want to make sure it doesn't get infected. If it gets infected, then we call it a corneal ulcer. One of the hallmarks used to be if you had a big corneal abrasion, we'd put some uh, erythromycin antibiotic ointment in the eye and then patch your eyes. A lot of times people don't like to have their eye patched. The advantage to having the eye patched is the epithelium probably heals faster uh, and it might be more comfortable. Every, if you have a corneal abrasion and you're missing some epithelium, every time you blink, every time your eyelid goes over that rough spot, you're going to feel it. One of the things we tell contact lens wearers is you have to stop your contact lenses because one of the concerns is that if you have a contact lens there, it can potentially trap bacteria underneath the contact lens and then lead to a, uh, an infection. So contact lens wearers, we tell them to stop their contacts and other types of corneal abrasions, we just basically cover them with an antibiotic. You could give people something like erythromycin ointment. If you're not patching their eyes, patients prefer not to have an ointment, which is more gel-like. They prefer just antibiotic drops. So common antibiotic drops we may use, you can use sulfa drops, you could use fluoroquinolone drops, even something like a uh, combination trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole drops, but it's good just to cover them with an antibiotic. What we probably don't use for drops, we probably don't use aminoglycoside like gentamicin drops because that can cause more redness and irritation to the eyes. We have been discussing common external eye conditions with Dr. Amir Khan, an ophthalmologist at the Mayo Clinic. Amir, you did a great job of describing a very visual thing and we're gonna get some photos of these conditions and we'll post them at the uh, internet site or the uh, podcast site. So our listeners can see actually what these look like in addition to hearing your description of them. So thank you so much for, uh, for educating us today, Amir. Well, Daryl, thank you for this opportunity.
You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.